For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again, how are you doing? If you haven't listened to the last episode with the Turkish-British fashion designer Bora Aksu, please do, because it's sort of related to this week's, I think, in that what he has to say about continuing to work and continuing to focus on creativity, in his case, staging a fashion show, when terrible events are unfolding elsewhere, is powerful stuff. We recorded that conversation during London Fashion Week in February 2023, while unimaginable horrors were emerging out of Turkey and Syria with the earthquake. And it got me thinking, is it even possible to put yourself in the shoes of those going through such things? What do we do when we're a step removed, but we want to express our care beyond donating, which is of course important? And I think for me, what I can do as a storyteller the best thing I can come up with is to give space on the podcast to some of those who might be willing or able to share their insights. I do believe in the power of storytelling to connect us and to make change. And so it's in that spirit that I bring you this very personal interview with Olena Brachenko. I met her because she and her six-year-old daughter Nina, well, they're Ukrainian refugees and they're currently living with my best friends, Rachel and Nick, and their son, Otis, at their house in London. And when I go to London, that's where I stay. And I look forward to going there so much. They tease me that I never want to leave. But I was thinking, what must it be like when you can't leave? When your husband and your parents and many of your friends are back home and you're watching the war on the news? That the place you're in is welcoming and safe is brilliant, obviously, but it's not home. Elena is a remarkable creative and academic. She's a book publisher and writer and a cultural diplomat, I would call her. I think she'd call herself that too. And she is determined to continue the work of the organisation that she and her husband set up to promote Ukrainian food culture. And she wanted to do this interview so, I mean, she did, she was super nervous because she had only, I think she's been speaking English for about seven months, although you would not know it. She is a rock star, but she was nervous about speaking in a second language, but she did want to come on the show and share about her latest book, which I would encourage you to consider buying. It's called Ukraine Food and History, and it's available on Amazon and I'll share links and details in the show notes. But she also wanted to get us to think about non-war stories, as well as, of course, paying attention to politics and what's happening in her country. She wanted us to learn more about Ukraine's contemporary food culture, as well as its traditions and amazing heritage and produce. And I had all these dinners with her and she was telling me stuff. I couldn't believe I'd never heard of it. But did you know, for example, that Ukraine's soil is extremely rich and wonderful and famously so, that because of it, they make brilliant heirloom tomatoes that are the wonder of the world, that they've got so many varieties of cherries. I think they've got more varieties of cherries than anywhere else. They are also famous for their walnuts. What else was she telling me? Oh, watermelons, right? So. The watermelon is really become this kind of cultural signifier, especially through the war, because the region where they are grown, Kherson, it's a farming city on the Black Sea, 
has been one of the frontline hotspots in the war. And actually, at the COP27 climate conference in Egypt, officials displayed, along with the Ukrainian flag at their pavilion, a watermelon. Did you see that? It's amazing. There's another one as well that she told me that UNESCO has inscribed the culture of Ukrainian borscht cooking onto something called their list of intangible cultural heritage in need of urgent safeguarding. And you'll also hear Elena talk about Ukrainian rock salt. And there's this famous, amazing, vast seam mine in the Donetsk region. And it's under this town called Solidar, which means gift of salt. And it was formed when an ancient sea in the region dried up. And it's the largest salt producer in Central and Eastern Europe. But of course, it's idle now. Production is on pause, a word that Elena uses to describe her own life. I mean, there's so much in this. I can't believe as well, if you want to go back and listen, that it's been a whole year since Venya Brickelin, the fashion editor of Vogue Ukraine, came on the podcast to talk about fashion's responsibility to take a stand, to show solidarity after the invasion. And more than 12 months on, there's still no end in sight. Tens of thousands of civilians have been killed. The UN estimates that 8 million people have been displaced. And again, it's these numbers, they're, they're terrible, but they're really hard to compute. And I just come back to this idea of numbers can only tell us so much. We need to hear the human stories. So I'll just tell you how this began, this idea of doing the podcast. So we were having dinner and Elena was telling me all these things about the heritage and the food and the produce. And she was on her way to Paris, like a couple of days later, she and Nina, her daughter, were traveling to Paris to host a dinner at the Ukrainian embassy. And her husband was going to join her. It was like this diplomatic culinary diplomacy mission, which is just amazing. And you hear her talk about that. And we were chatting through like, what could we talk about on the show? And that evening she wrote me a little note. And she said, she was thinking through her ideas and she said, your podcast is about sustainable development. My project is about the gastronomic culture of Ukraine. And she said, I think we could talk about important connections. The first is what our traditions can tell people or tell us about the sustainable use of natural resources and how we treat our food and land and relationships to those things. The second topic she wrote is how Russia's war that's been unleashed against Ukraine is not only about Russia's imperial aggression, it's not only about a totalitarian regime struggling with the idea of democracy or the physical destruction of Ukrainian cities and houses and enterprises, but she said it's also about the damage to biodiversity, nature and ecology caused by this war. And she described cucumber fields and cherry orchards filled with Russian mines, forests and animals and lakes and trees being destroyed. I asked her about the power of soft diplomacy. I said, can it make a difference? And her answer was emphatic. No, it won't make a difference to Putin, she said. But what she calls culinary diplomacy absolutely can make you fall in love with Ukraine and tell a powerful alternative story. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Please follow Elena on Instagram. We'll share the link and write to her and tell her that you thought she did a good job with her English because she should not be nervous because she is amazing. <laughs> and let me know how you feel about this episode and all of our others. And thank you, dear listener, for continuing to support Wardrobe Crisis. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Olena Brachinko. Yeah. I'm learning. 
<laughs> and I'm going to call you Lena because that's what we're doing around the house. <laughs> uh, Lena is like more uh, for home using, but originally Olena. But sometimes if my husband don't agree with me, he use always Olena. It was the same. <laughs> okay, we're recording this at my best friend's house, Rachel and Nick. You and your daughter Nina are staying here. Why? Because the war after full-scale Russian invasion in Ukraine, I and my daughter, like a lot of people from Ukraine, live uh, for a short time my country. And now we, with Nina, live here. But my parents, my sister... Uh, my nephew, my sister husband, and part of my friends uh, still live in uh, Ukraine, of course. Did you think that you would come for a short time and then return quickly? I don't know, really, because every month my mind is changed. How old is Nina? <laughs> uh, she is six years old, but uh, when the war was started, she was five years old. And for me, I can feel her six years old because we have a lot like um, family traditional how we celebrate uh, birthday of course we have uh, I, uh, here I bought for Nina tickets for Lion King for London theater it was amazing but I still didn't believe she is six for me it's like time was stopped one one moment because all my previous life was like on pause, uh, like pause, like on when you record something and you touch pause. Crazy. Sorry for my absolutely bad English, but I am studying now. I just want to say before we begin mm -hmm. that you've only been learning English for seven months. You weren't speaking English before you came. Nope. When I was young, we have one lesson, one times lesson. Uh, a week, but we was absolutely horrible book, and we studied just grammar or trying reading. And also, my school it's suburban area near the Kiev, and every three months our teacher was changed <laughs> because he or she found a good job in the city. But actually, this is extraordinary to me that you have got such... You were worried about recording this because English is not your first language, of course. But you've got amazing grasp of a language after seven months. I'd like to see me speak Ukrainian after 10 years. So thank you and well done. Thank you. I think it's unfathomable for those of us who have not been displaced to even imagine what it must be like. You told me the other day, just before the war, you were sitting with your friends having drink in a bar and everything seemed normal. And then the next minute you wake up and everything has changed. Everything is changed, but also now I absolutely, I feel like I need work more hard than before because I need to be like a part of Voice Ukraine. Because another my colleague, they still live in the city and they need thinking about their safety life. And also some of my friends they are fighting. Yeah, a responsibility. When war started, I think, okay, I need to forget my previous life, my previous experience, like a scientist, like a publisher, like author. When I move into this country, I feel just 
maybe I'm just woman with children and without relationship, uh, without uh, my social uh, network, network without nothing. I wonder if you would just repeat what we were talking about before we recorded about this importance of a telling enough stories that don't just focus on the hardship, standing in the queue, the handouts. You said to me before, you want to work, you want to... This is the first time in your life that you've had to take handouts. Yes, of uh, and not just me. A lot of people from Ukraine want to work and want to pay tax and other things. Not, of course, not at all people, because every mm. country have different people. It's absolutely true and normal. But this idea that you're a refugee, so you must be one way. Of, yeah. It's, or you potentially, the stereotype of you come and you expect everyone to look after you. No. Some of my colleagues uh, search work at new university, in cafe, in journalists. It's absolutely different story. Mm. And we don't think about cliché and stereotype. Of course, it's very easy way for mm. understanding other people and other country, but it's way, way, bad way. So you've left your husband behind because no men are allowed to leave Ukraine right now. Yeah, it's true. But he's not fighting. Nope. Now he try keep our organization alive. It's very important. Uh, before war, during the ten years, I'm study history of food anthropology of food and uh, five years ago we with my husband uh, opened a small independent project Yija Kultura it's translated uh, like food and culture about uh, Ukrainian history about Ukrainian food about uh, some recipe about some unique uh, region uh, products like cheese or watermelon or some special salt, like um, stone, salt, salt, rock stone. salt, rock salt. Yes, exactly. Thank you. We founded uh, this uh, project Yija Kultura. It's independent project. We published first books about uh, history Crimean Tatar, but we show through food. And after that, we published some book about medieval history cuisine from Ukrainian uh, scientist research Stefania Demchuk and book uh, Ukrainian food and history. Do you have a PhD? Uh, yes, but my PhD was about culture suburban, how it changed, how people change their mind and imagination about place. How interesting. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, food for me more interesting. <laughs> Yesterday... Mm -hmm. We were talking about one of your books, which has been translated into English. And that's when I said, I really want to do this podcast with you. It's called Ukraine Food and History. And it tells the story of modern Ukrainian cuisine and is filled with beautiful recipes and photographs. I want to read out this paragraph from the intro, and then we're going to talk about what's in the pages of this fantastic book. In the modern globalized world, Food serves as an entry point to a country's culture, history, traditions, and lifestyle. Food unites us and creates a positive atmosphere for communication. Important not only for family and friends, but for diplomatic reasons. And you use this phrase, culinary diplomacy. Yeah. This book contains 80 recipes 
for home cooking and also for restaurant cooking, six uh, Ukrainian chefs from different parts of Ukraine improve this recipe. This book was created two years ago as a certain showcase, not just like country after Soviet Union, but absolutely new democracy country. Long time, when they think about Ukrainian cuisine, they think about the part of village culture. And uh, it's like a bad stereotype from Soviet period. And this book, it's... Sophisticated. Sophisticated. It's first book about new image. A new language, a new language of food. And also all these chefs and the modern element, I think, is what's Mm -hmm. so interesting to me because as someone who was ignorant about Ukrainian culture until I picked up your book, Mm. yeah, I I didn't know. I hadn't thought, I haven't visited, so I didn't know about the restaurant culture. Of course it would be there, but it was new for me to learn about different chefs, different food traditions and how the modern fashionable take on Mm -hmm. it, I guess. Yes, it's also true. And maybe world fashionable is good for this book. We used uh, every plate, every cup, every textile. It's from uh, Ukrainian small... uh, Like artisan makers or designers. Artisan makers and designers. And also it's new uh, voice. How amazing. Okay, tell us what you're doing Tuesday. (laughs) Oh, we are going with my daughter to Paris, Ukrainian Institute in Paris. And our dinner will show French people Ukrainian culture Mm. without stereotype. We're talking about soft diplomacy, and I hadn't used this phrase, culinary diplomacy, before, but it's all the same idea, that you can find a commonality, a soft entry into building bridges of cultural connection, I guess, where the difficult, hard questions about war and politics stand at the side, but maybe it's a way in. Um, But it's also very important when we talk about war, Sometimes it's not about bad people or good people. People sometimes don't identify yourself with other people who live, hmm, their life maybe it's not really value. But when we talk about culture, we show every people, yeah, every life has value. Of course. It's also, isn't it, about this moving away from or resisting a single story. When we tell, which we must tell, the story of violence and injustice, we have to tell the story, it's important, the story of war and invasion. But when that's the only story we hear in the news, there's a barrier up there, isn't there? Yeah, it, it's also, maybe it's normal because our physical, mental health blocked uh, mm-hmm. sometimes a very horrible story. But also... I really hope people, I think people need to know about Ukrainian today. During the war, some artisan craft makers still work. For example, uh, we have a bookshop, online bookshop in Ukrainian, and people still buy book. It's amazing. But of course they do, because at the end of all this is life, which must go it's- on unless it is stopped. And the restaurant also working. Right, yeah, 
And even I think also maybe listeners don't understand this thing about movement as well. I didn't until I met you. And also before you, there was another family that was staying in this house, Natalia. So I didn't know that you could return. And obviously it's not easy, but you can return. You can go back and visit your family and also your husband, albeit he's mm -hmm. not really allowed to leave. He's allowed to leave to meet you in Paris because yep. of this reason, this culinary diplomacy reason and because the embassy has made it possible, right? But it's not as simple as we might think when we look at the news that life doesn't continue. It does. Yes. Mm -hmm. And also, for example, when we talk about restaurant, when in Kiev was blackout, some restaurant quickly bought uh, gener generators. generators and using this for make a coffee. And some people go to this restaurant and work with laptop, with yeah. telephone, and using this place for communication and for working. It's a powerful story. Mm. It's a story about strong people. It's a story about lovely people. Absolutely. It's also about love. It's also about love. We're going to talk about love. You just cooked me something. What are we eating right now? Very traditional Ukrainian breakfast. It's called sirniki. It consists just cheese, but fresh cheese. Soft cheese. Soft, uh, fresh cheese. And egg, a little bit sugar and salt, and uh, one spoon of flour. It's a very small, very fluffy Strangely cheese-based pancake. <laughs> and we use it with uh, honey, with uh, jam, with sour cream, with Nutella. <laughs> you said the kids like Nutella. <laughs> yeah. I said, I'm a kid. Bring it on. <laughs> All right. What is a Ukrainian dish that everybody knows? Of course, borscht. First of all, in 2022, borscht, it's part of Ukrainian uh, heritage and uh, UNESCO said yes. So UNESCO recognized yes. it as a culinary tradition of Ukraine? Yeah. Did they? And uh, also... What is it? What about if no one's oh. heard what it is? Beetroot? Um, it's not about just beetroot. Borscht is a very good case for... When we talk about borscht, we can talk about everything. Uh, for example, borscht can describe our seasonal because during the winter we eat borscht with meat and with sour cabbage. During springtime, we use green borscht with sorrel, with uh, different, um, something like grass, uh, with boiled egg, and sometimes without beetroot. It's hot soup yeah. with uh, balance sweet and savory. Okay, tell us something more about Ukrainian food traditions. Maybe for those who don't know, give us a bit of background on the country geographically and season-wise. And also about our geography, borscht also show our geography. Because, for example, on the north, you can meet a borscht with some berries for this uh, sour tasty. Okay. And uh, on the south. South. <laughs> south. <laughs> I'm still blown away by how good your English is. I think it's terrific. South. You can meet borscht with fish without meat. So south is Black Sea, there's and a coast. Azovsky Sea. Yep. And there is, south and is a agricultural. Big river, Dnipro, we have a big, big river. Uh, it's Dnipro. And a small river and small lake with a different type of fish. And everybody knows that Ukraine is famous for its wheat. 
So agriculture dominating in the south. And there are grown uh, watermelon, uh, beetroot, onion, sunflowers, and different kinds of vegetables. And north of Ukrainian, it's different landscape, and it's also different little bit uh, culinary heritage. Uh, there are forests, and it's really green place. And the west of Ukraine, it's mountain. West, it's Poland. Yeah. And in the east, we have horrible neighbors. <laughs> Indeed. And our country before war uh, contained 40 million people. So across that population, there are lots of different food traditions. Of course. But one of the things that you and I talked about is this very common thing that you called it the practice of gardening. People grow stuff in their houses, in their back gardens, a bit like we might have a few people here with allotments, but you're saying there it's really common. Everybody does it if they can. Mm, yeah. Growing everything. Growing potato, growing carrots. On uh, If Ukrainian people have absolutely small part of land, be sure these people will be growing up onion or deal or something. There is this connection that you might go and live in the city as a student or you go and live with a f your family and live an urban life, but there is still this connection that, or tradition that you would, if your family have this plot of land, go back at, at different times in the season to help them cultivate it. Of course, uh, for example, before war, we, with my husband, we live in the Kiev and my parents live in suburban area. It's just 15 minutes or 20 minutes between our flat and our home. But we can buy potato. Yeah, but you were saying we could we go never... to the supermarket, we could <laughs> buy it, but we don't want to. But I yeah. never buy potato because I always used to my parents' potato. You also told me that your mother grew walnuts. You said yes. to me the other day, Look, walnuts are so expensive. How crazy. I would never, oh. never bought them in my life. The trees are full of them. No, no. I can buy uh, walnuts and also I can buy cherries. Can't bring yeah. yourself to do it. Yes, because <laughs> I never buy it. There's something interesting here though, isn't there, about this connection with land, with growing things, with soil that we have severed or lost in much of, I don't know, let's just take Britain as an example. And also we believe products from your own garden is the best. You mentioned this tradition of pickling, of collecting, foraging for mushrooms, for berries. Mm, picking mushroom is our favorite thing uh, because it's not just about mushrooms. It's about our time. It's about our sport. But also we really love mushroom and we use mushroom in maybe in every dish. We have also an ice cream with white mushrooms. No. <laughs> really? It just... Uh, but not like truffle. Not truffle. Mm. But it's like, uh, just for special occasion. It's about restaurant culture. But originally we cooked uh, mushrooms. Uh, also, you can meet borscht with mushrooms and without... You can make borscht with anything I've learned this. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> But you told me a terrible thing actually yesterday. You said that there are now more landmines in Ukraine than anywhere else and that the idea of going into the forest or going into certain parts of the land to forage for mushrooms is dangerous. But you said there's still people in your family who are like, well, I'm doing it because this is my, it's like an act of resistance. Yes, and also it's about land because you need to understand 
we feel it's our land. And I don't want afraid walking on my land. I want pickle mushrooms. <laughs> and also we collect blueberries in forests. Wild ones. Wild. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I talk about wild. Actually, tell us quickly a lovely recipe with berries. The best way to use berries is eat fresh. And you don't need any recipe. You need just fresh berry from forest or strawberries, not like big strawberries, small, but absolutely amazing strawberries from forest. But if you want something like recipe, you can use honey and uh, sour cream. Sour cream in Ukrainian called smetana. It's a little bit different than sour cream. It's more savory. And it's absolutely good combined when you used berries, a little bit savory sour cream, and sweet honey. It's great. Another thing you told me yesterday was about the tomatoes. I was waxing lyrical about these Italian tomatoes that Rachel mm -hmm. has got that are actually not hydroponic. And you said, oh, no, 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 no. The greatest tomatoes come from Ukraine. You can't beat it. It's to do with the soil. It's true, but not because it's a special tomato from my memory, because it's, uh, we have really reason why Ukrainian tomatoes or cucumber or another vegetables is different, because we have different soil. It's named Chernozem or black soil. This type of soil very hard for work, because it's soil like, like butter and glue. But vegetables, absolutely. Love it. Yeah. You sent me something about this. I'm going to share it. The fertility of this soil is because it contains a high percentage of hummus and high percentages of phosphorus and ammonia compounds naturally. Yeah. So you've got very fertile soil in but certain regions. But now yeah. we lose this soil because war. Can we talk about that? You've said to me when we were preparing this that the war has impacted food production. And you told me that the front line now passes through the regions where tomatoes and cucumbers were grown in large quantities. And he also said fighting is taking place in the cherry fields. It's a horrible idea. Now uh, we I have... mean, actually, just stop for a moment and think about that. We know about human carnage, and that's obviously the worst thing you can imagine, and you see these buildings collapsing. But it's also nature and farming that Ex is impacted. Exactly. I always worry, um, I feel really worried when we talk about just, sometimes just about building. But we didn't talk about animals. And trees. It's absolutely horrible story because about wild animals and about home animals, pet and cow and pigs. Now, a lot of pigs walking around without people. It's absolutely horrible story. Also, when we talk about nature, we can talk about trees, about forest, and about, for example, in Ukrainian, we have city Melitopol. Melitopol, it's a city near the sea, and there are grown 40 different kinds of uh, cherries. But we don't know what's happened with this, but it's also our heritage. Yeah. These are such difficult topics, but we, coming back to the one story that the media loves to tell one story, and the story needs to be told of the bombing of cities and of people losing their lives, but there's this whole other web of impact that 
you can't avoid. You're losing cultural heritage of the orchard. You're losing animals and habitats. And I always think about trees when I see that. I'm obsessed with trees. So when I see those pictures of forests, it's devastating, actually. And now you're saying this is important, the cultural heritage of growing food, of these orchards, of these areas that have for hundreds of years been used to produce food. Yes. And not not just land. It's also lake. It's also river. And it's a Pollution, big... of course. Yes. And also, for example, before war, some restaurant said, okay, now we can't use some plastic but now everybody use plastic and another container because because it's God. Work. I didn't think about that. The practicality. It's yes. just practical. You have to it's like in COVID when suddenly all of the advances in single use plastic were yeah. rolled back because hygiene. But it was happened like one moment. For example, some voluntary kitchen, they used absolutely huge different plastic things but it's not because we don't know about we need save yeah. life yeah but also this this question around what kind of pollution are we putting into the soil into the rivers and into the lakes i don't know mm. when when i thinking about it it mm. it's absolutely horrible because and also russian soldiers leave a lot mine in garden in forest. Bastards. We made two episodes in Laos about the heritage of the so-called secret war, which left Laos riddled with unexploded ordnance. And I will share a link to that. But I'd like everyone listening to think about what, from a sustainability perspective, because that's what we talk about on this podcast, war is not just politics. It's not just a a humanitarian disaster or people moving. It's all the connections, the connections with nature, the systems that stop working, and what happens afterwards when we have to clean it up. Um, We need belief. Yeah, we need to believe. I want to talk about sustainability in a positive way because we can also learn a lot. I've learned a lot from you in the past few days, Lena, about sustainability from Ukrainian practices and Mm -hmm. culinary habits and this gardening that is so widespread. Talk a little bit about waste and taking care of sufficiency, Mm -hmm. maybe. (laughs) When we talk about Ukrainian cuisine, we need thinking not just about some special dishes, but about our habits. For example, when I was young, I saw how pig grown up. And of course, for pigs, pigs, how they were raised. Yeah. And of course, I know for what? For our food. And uh, maybe it sounds like, oh my goodness, uh, little children can see how pigs uh, diet. It's true. But after you see how this animal grown up and you understand this animal was diet for your food. And after that, you never leave on your plate some skin or some fat because mm, I doesn't like it. You will be eating everything. Respect. There is something about distance from how things are made 
whether clothes or food, that allows us to disrespect the process or the product because we don't see it. Yes, and when you will buy something in from shop, you see very beautiful fake. piece, <laughs> fake, but very beautiful piece of meat or piece of another dishes, and you can disassociate it completely from the animal. Yeah. I want to ask you about the banana before we finish, because <laughs> I actually think this is super interesting. And the bounty. <laughs> I, I, okay, but uh, for this story, I need to tell you when I was born. I was born in 1983. Uh, it was period Soviet Union. Uh, maybe in 1996, I tried my first banana. And of course, I still remember this banana. And also in this year, I was tried first kiwi and first chocolate bar. It was Bounty, Twix, and Mars, and Snickers. <laughs> my dad bought for us one chocolate, and we chopped four pieces for my mom, for my dad, for me, and for my sister. And we tried this first Bounty. Uh, bounty, because, and also I keep this cover from Bounty. Because you kept we, the wrapper. Yeah. <laughs> because we never see before this new product. So the Soviet Union was closed for years and years and you did not have outside products or outside freedom of movement. So imagine then suddenly the borders open and you have this influx of possibility of things from the West. And you said to me that for a long time, people were so dazzled by the yeah. things from the West that they just got excited, whatever it was, even if it was rubbish. <laughs> but also that that's changing. Talk about McDonald's. <laughs> uh, McDonald's and other products from Europe, because you need to understand, for example, when you went to shop, you can see just pickled tomato and pickled cucumber and uh, maybe some chocolate, but it's never been colorful packaging. It was, everything looks boring, gray and black or a deep green. It's typical color or life in Soviet Union. And one time you see uh, advertising. I remember first advertising on TV. I like it mm. because it was about bounty or whisper. It was amazing. Or Coca-Cola. Of course, it was like a little movie. You also said this thing to me, though, that McDonald's came to Kiev and people were so excited. But then when briefly McDonald's closed, this time with the war, mm -hmm. there was a feeling of, oh, no, not because of, back. Yeah, not of the lack of a bad Big Mac, but because yeah. of this representation of what freedom yes. is. Yes, because McDonald's, it's not about really food for Ukrainian people. It was about like a new wave from Europe. From 1991, when Ukrainian got independence, maybe first 15 years, we think, oh, cheese from another country is better than cheese from my neighborhood. Or yogurt from uh, shop is better than homemade yogurt. Everything is better. But now there is this lovely turning around of that idea, right? And looking back at what is wonderful about 
your own culture? Especially when Ukrainian people was start uh, traveling to another country and uh, was open to another culture, we can comparative different culture, different type of products and understand, okay, we have one good things, friends have another good things. And also in, in Ukrainian and in, in France, you can find bad things. Yeah. It's life. I believe a lot of people who read news, who meet Ukrainian people on the street or in the cafe or open their heart and their home for Ukrainian people, won't uh, visit Ukraine after war. I really invite you to Kyiv when it will be safe. And I can show everything amazing, uh, food, stuff, products, place in Ukraine, absolutely different. Thank you for your attention and that you are interested in our culture. Oh my God. <laughs> Did you feel like that was hard? No, it's, oh, I never, I can't believe I was talking in English. It was English, it was not Ukrainian. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you Because I love you